If you're new with us, uh, we're taking three weeks here in uh, the last three weeks of July to look at various psalms, psalms that speak particularly to uh, troubled souls. Uh, and uh, this morning we're in Psalm 46, and I'd like to pray before we jump into it. Father, we thank you for the great gift it is to gather together to sing your praise and now to sit under your word. And I pray that you, the one who opens up eyes, would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, that we may have increased faith as a result, that our love may abound for one another more, and that our hope may be strong. So now would you do what only you do, by your Spirit, making us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 46 has been called Martin Luther's psalm. Martin Luther, if you don't know, was the German reformer, uh, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. And they call it Luther's psalm because this uh, psalm was the basis for his famous hymn that we sing often around here and other churches around the world, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that particular song was also known as the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. And Luther put many uh, theological truths to music, to song, and that made a significant impact uh, all across Europe. And we all know that, right, that songs shape us. Uh, our beliefs, our worldviews are shaped by our songs. As one 18th century Scottish politician put it, let me write the songs of a nation, and I don't care who makes its laws. And we know that uh, whether you're listening to uh, pop music or whether you're listening to the Psalms, uh, that uh, what we're singing and what we're thinking about really does uh, impact us. And when Luther wrote, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on Psalm 46, uh, this happened about 10 years after he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg. In 1527, he was going through a lot. He had, for example, acute buzzing in his ear that made him think that he was dying. He was facing great discouragement. He had heart and intestinal problems. And there was a deadly plague that had entered Germany and spread to his town. And he and his wife, Katie, opened up their home when many were fleeing, and they basically made it a hospital. Uh, some people died uh, right there in their home. And Psalm 46 became a great source of strength to his soul during this time. He used to say to his associate, Melanchthon, come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And this is what he said about it. We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. In other words, it was a great encouragement to Martin Luther, but we must say that this is not Luther's psalm, not his alone. This is our psalm. This is the church's psalm. It has been read in times of trouble, in times of tragedy, times of persecution, in times of grief. I've heard it numerous times at funerals. A sister told me just last night on social media that when her husband was diagnosed with cancer, a young man, that she memorized it and recited it every night before she went to sleep. It's been read in times of personal struggle as well as times of international conflict as nations war against each other. Like Psalm 27, Psalm 46 is what's called a psalm of confidence. We're not sure of the exact time in which it was written, but we are sure of the problem. That it, it, it involves great trouble, great threat. And we are sure about the main subject of the psalm. You see it in the very first word in your English Bible, God. God is our refuge and our strength. And everything else that flows from Psalm 46 magnifies His character, especially His protection 
and his presence. His protection of his people, his presence with his people. You know, many Psalms teach us to trust God, to find safety in God. This God offers us but one, or this Psalm offers us but one imperative, one thing to do. It comes down in verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. That's the only imperative until you get to verse 10 where God speaks and says, be still and know that I am God. In other words, the psalm is telling us the God we trust in. Come behold the God you trust in. Get your eyes off of your circumstance and get your eyes on your God. Behold what help you have. Behold what a refuge you have. Behold what, what strength you have in this God. Now, we could divide this psalm up neatly, I think, by using the selahs. There are three of them, as we just sang about. You say, what's a selah? Well, we don't really know, but it's nice to sing it. Um, some understand this to, uh, to mean silence or uh, pause, reflect, that, that sort of thing, intermission. I prefer to think of it as a guitar solo. Uh, that's where, it, where you insert it, um, or maybe a little hip-hop. Um, but nevertheless, it, it, it helps us divide the structure as you've got basically three three uh, aspects of, of trouble, three kinds of trouble where God provides protection and presence. The first is verses 1 to 3, there's protection in a creational crisis. Verses 4 uh, to 7, there's uh, protection and presence in the midst of raging attackers. And then in 8 to 10, there's presence and protection in world history. And the big idea is very simple. There is only safety in God. There is only refuge in God. And so come behold. First of all, come behold his presence and protection in a creational crisis. We have the superscription there in verse 1, the choir master of the sons of Korah according to Alamoth, which again is one of those words we're not sure about. It probably has to do with the, the tune in which the song was sung. We just sang it according to Kimberly. Um, but, but then we have verse 1, which is really the lead line and, and the most popular line in the psalm other than probably verse 10. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So notice here the reality of this. God is our refuge and strength. He is. It's true. He is our source of protection from all of our enemies, from all of the trouble. As our refuge, He can prevent trouble from coming to us, or we can run to Him in the midst of the trouble. Numerous psalms use this imagery of God being a refuge to us. I'll just read one out of a many in the psalm, Psalm 62. The psalmist says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And then here's the implication of God being your refuge. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge to us. He's a great guarded city when our enemies surround us. <clears throat> He's the mighty castle where we find safety. Someone said it's sort of like how Harry Potter ran into Hogwarts under the reign of uh, Dumbledore. I know nothing about that. You have to check with uh, the nerds uh, on that. But, uh, <laughs> but I do know that you can run to your God. He is a strong tower. He is a refuge. And Jesus reigns sovereignly over all things. And that's where we find our refuge, our protection. The question is, can you say, can you make it personal like the psalmist? He's my refuge. He's our refuge. God is with us. 
God is for us. In the coming of the Messiah, one of the ways we describe Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And He is our strength. So sometimes God prevents trouble from coming to us. Sometimes He permits trouble to come to us. And when He permits, He strengthens. He can protect and shield, or when it comes, He gives strength. So we see the defensive aspect of God as our refuge. We run to Him, and we see the dynamic aspect of God as refuge. He gives us strength. He gives us vitality. And He is a very present help in time of trouble. can be translated, a well-proven help. We could all stand up here and give example after examples of God being a well-proven help. You perhaps went through the pain of a broken relationship and found Him to be a well-proven present help. The threat of physical death, the trauma of being mistreated by someone, the pain of unemployment, the grief of abandonment, the grief of miscarriage or infertility. We have present help. We have a well-proven help. And we know in the Gospels we see Jesus, this man of sorrows who experienced pain. He experienced betrayal. He experienced abandonment. He experienced grief. And Hebrew says he is our sympathetic high priest who is able to give us grace and mercy in our time of need. Jesus is the ultimate helper, the ultimate well-proven help. You know, you can't always rely on people to help you, right? Sometimes they're unwilling, sometimes they're unable, but God is always available. He is present to bless His people. This past week I was in Colorado with a group of church planters from the northeast and southeast, and at one point we just turned at our round tables and we, we told stories of how we've seen God's faithfulness the past 15 months, how we've seen God be a present help in the midst of a hard year. And that's what the people of God can do. We, we have war stories, don't we, of God being our refuge and strength in time. I mean, real trouble, real crisis, real grief. It's true. And our response to this, he says in verse 2, is we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, <clears throat> though the mountains be moved into the hearts of the sea, This is one of the great blessings of being a Christian. We have great comfort. We don't have to fear when God is near and He is with us. I'm sure perhaps you've read the the old Heidelberg Catechism this morning. Um, Let me refresh your memory on one of the first questions. What is our only comfort in life and death? That's a great question. It's your only comfort in life and death. It's the answer. That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my comfort. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also, the the, the creed says, preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. He willed it a lot for some of us. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. What comfort we have. God is our refuge and strength. He's our present help. Therefore, we will not fear, even though, He says, the mountains, like the mountains have been moved into the heart of the sea. He he describes here this kind of creational catastrophe, this, this chaos. In creation, God took 
chaos and made order. And here, there's, there's order that's been turned into chaos. It's a picture of decreation. Whereas one professor said one time, what the psalmist is picturing here is a worst-case scenario. He's poetically describing a worse. He said this in a particular instance about, I don't know, a few, several years, a few years ago. I was teaching a, a class with another professor who was very well known on the West Coast. And almost all the students in this cohort, there were 12 students, were only at this school because of this professor. And right before I went to co-teach it, it came out that he had a terrible moral failure, had been dismissed from the school, and the students were just devastated. And this professor came in to try to give some care to these students. And he brought his big Hebrew Bible in. I remember he had big thick glasses and a big Bible. And he opened it up. I was like, what's he going to say? Because I'm about to take some notes. And he opened to Psalm 46. And he says, what the psalmist is describing is a worst case scenario. What do we do when worst case scenarios happen to us? Because here's the thing. They will happen to us. They will happen to us. And they can happen, these, these moments in which it looks like the mountains have trembled and, and the waters are, are roaring and foaming. It happens momentarily sometimes. One minute you think your relationship is secure and then you find out it's not. One minute your finances are secure and then they're not. One minute you think your job is secure and it's not. That your kids are secure, that your health is secure, and then the mountains give way. And they're thrown into the heart of the sea. It can happen so quickly, just one doctor's visit, just one phone call, just one reorg in your company, and you're not in the org anymore. <laughs> just in a moment, <clears throat> calm turns into chaos. In these unpredictable circumstances of life, take Psalm 46 with you. Know that because he is your refuge and strength, you don't have to fear. And if you have a friend who is going through one of these chaotic moments, apply Psalm 46 to their lives. That's number one, God's presence and protection in a creational crisis. Secondly, in the midst of raging attackers. There's a transition now to the psalmist thinking about a city that is under siege and how God is the source of protection against these foes. You see how there's also a shift in the mood of the psalm. We've went from the mountains falling into the sea and the waters uh, roaring and foaming to there's a river in the middle of the city. It makes glad the city of God. From roaring, foaming waters to a calm, peaceful, nourishing river. God can do both. And he says, when chaos surrounds the city, when the enemies surround the city, God is in the midst of her, protecting her. Now, we don't know if the psalmist had a particular example in mind, but one that, is very, uh, that works very well to illustrate these verses is back in Hezekiah's day. As you may recall, you can read about this uh, in Isaiah 36 and 37. Isaiah was a prophet during Hezekiah's day. <clears throat> and the Assyrians surrounded the city, and they had reached the walls of Jerusalem, but they did not prevail. Hezekiah prayed to God to intervene, and 185,000 Assyrians were struck dead. 
And it says in Isaiah 37, 35, God says, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And the narrator says, and when the people arose early in the morning, when the morning dawned, behold, these 185,000 were all dead bodies. Why? God was in the midst of her. She shall not be moved, even though the nations rage all around them. God is there to be, to be present and to protect. He's here described as the one who is the giver of this river. Rivers are very important places for cities. Most cities in ancient times and even today are built along rivers. It's interesting here that the psalmist describes the river being in the city of Zion in Jerusalem, but there is no river in Jerusalem. <clears throat> there is a tunnel that Hezekiah built from the Gihon Spring up to the Pool of Siloam that provides a river, but, or provides water. <clears throat> but a siege was always a threat to Jerusalem for this very problem. They were out of reach of uh, a river. And so this is a metaphor of God's protection, God's power, God's peace, God's satisfaction. He is the one who is protecting His people. He's all the river you need. He is the one providing the satisfaction. He's all the river you need. It's very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden and of the New Jerusalem we read about in Revelation. God is the one who nourishes us, who blesses us, who strengthens us. God is the one who gladdens the hearts of His people. He does it today, and He will do it forever. He satisfies us with His presence even in the midst of raging attackers. Even in the midst of storms, there can be calmness and contentment. You know, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, <clears throat> came to evangelize Native Americans in the States, but wasn't truly converted. And he was on a boat with the Moravian missionaries. They were missionaries in Germany, and, from Germany. And in the midst of a crazy storm, Wesley reports watching them peacefully with their kids singing. And it had a tremendous impact on Wesley, who eventually did get really converted. And Wesley said, while there were great storms, or there were, while there were great screams from the English speakers, the Germans sang on. They not only displayed faith, but there was a gladness in the midst of the storm, a joy, a peace. That's what God does for us. He says it's the holy habitation of the Most High God. That is, God chose to dwell there in Zion. Zion is very important in the Psalms. It's exalted language. It's exalted language about Jerusalem that points ahead to the New Testament's description of Zion being a heavenly community of the redeemed. So it's not just a historical location on earth. It's more than that. It was a, it was a type of something greater. God is dwelling with His people today through Jesus Christ. What made Jerusalem significant was the temple God chose to dwell, and Jesus says, there is something greater than the temple here, me. And through me, by the Spirit, God makes our hearts His home. He dwells with us. <clears throat> so if we want to commune with God, we don't have to take a trip to the Middle East. We have Jesus Christ. We can commune with Him all the time. And one day, this symbolic place of God's presence and dwelling will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea, as God dwells with His people. We will sing this song in a new way then. We're dwelling with the God who's made His habitation among us. He's in the midst of us, therefore we shall not be 
moved. You know, church, this is what makes God's people distinct. It's not our intellect. It's not our looks. It's not our strength. It's the fact that God is with us. God is with us. Revelation, John says that Jesus walks among the lampstands. He walks among his people. And so we will have our attackers, won't we? We will have our enemies, and we take confidence in the fact that Jesus is with us, that we are his. The people of God have always been attacked by raging attackers, and that's because Satan hates the work of the church. He hates what we believe. He hates what we do. He's just a sore loser, right? And church, even today, we see this all the time, don't we, in the public square, how there are so many attacks made on things like religious freedom, on the biblical view of family and gender and marriage, on the sacredness of human life. And as we hold to these biblical truths, we can anticipate slander, ridicule, and potentially persecution. Well, what do we do when that happens? We do not fear. We just get in line with the rest of Christians throughout the the history of the church who have been persecuted who have been alienated, who realize this world is not our home, that that we here have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. That's the city we look forward to. And so we're pilgrims now. We're we're strangers now. And we'll never quite fit in with the, the mold of this world. And so we don't freak out. We're not fearful because God is with us. God will protect us. He will protect us and bless us even in our most vulnerable times. I think that's what verse 5b means. God will help her when the morning dawns. That's the time when a lot of attackers would come in, when the the people were most vulnerable. And in our most vulnerable points, God is our help. In other words, when we've done everything we know to do in our own power and strength and, and, and intellect, God intervenes. God has a history of intervening. He intervened one particular morning on Sunday morning. When Jesus rose from the dead, he helped us in our most vulnerable to defeat the thing we could never defeat, namely death. I mean, how are you going to beat death? You can beat LeBron, but you can't beat death. Okay? Like, <laughs> some, somebody had to step in, and God has helped us in our most vulnerable times, and he continues to do the same when we're weak, when we're fragile. So he says, you know, the nations are raging. Our enemies may attack us. But we look at this psalm and we say, all the Lord needs to do is open his mouth. He utters his voice. The earth melts. It melts like like ice cream on a hot day. By the way, please tell the 9 o'clock, you have friends in the 9, I said like ice cream on a cold day. I messed up. So just correct me, okay? I don't know. Excuse me. I don't know if that's possible, but that's what I meant to say. On a, on a hot day, uh, it melts. He just utters his voice. It's like Psalm 2. The, why, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? Why do they keep rebelling against me? And it says the Lord laughs at them. He laughs at them. And here's the refrain that's repeated in the psalm, verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When you're nervous... When you're afraid, when you're fearful, and we will be, we'll be, will be, we recall this truth. Sometimes it's the most basic truth we need to come back to. 
I've always been encouraged by 2 Timothy 4, 17, the mighty Paul was encouraged by this simple truth. He says, at my first defense, when I stood before the Caesar, everybody deserted me. I was by myself. But then he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. It's like the Lord Jesus came, put his arm around Paul and said, you got this. You're going to crush it. That's what happened. The Lord is with us. That makes all the difference. He's our fortress. Notice his majesty here. He's called the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't like this translation as much as others. I don't, the CSB puts it better, I think, and more accurate. The Lord of angelic armies is with us. Doesn't that sound better? <laughs> Sounds a lot more majestic. That we are not alone, and really not alone. Two, two historical examples of, of this. 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath, well-known story. We think about David, the little guy, got his five stones. But what's often left out of the story when we retell it is that David wasn't by himself. This is what David says in 1 Samuel 17, 45. He says to Goliath, you come to me with a, with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have denied. In other words, I'm not alone, big guy. I come to you in the name of the Lord of angelic armies. <coughs> Perhaps a more vivid analogy, 2 Kings chapter 6. The Syrians come uh, upon Israel and Israel's uh, prophet, Elisha. And Elisha's got this little servant with him. He's like a little associate, a seminarian. And Elisha looks at this army, these Syrians, you can imagine it today with tanks and machine guns and weapons, and the servant is rightfully scared. <laughs> and Elisha turns to this guy and he says, this is uh, one of the verses in that chapter, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who were with him. And the servant's like, what are you talking about, Willis? Because <laughs> he can't see them. Elisha sees that the Lord of angelic armies has a massive group of horses and chariots that far outnumber the Assyrians. <clears throat> and then Elisha says, Lord, would you open his eyes? And he does. And he sees this army. And the Syrians do not prevail. You know what this means? There is a whole other world that many people don't think about. They try to live out of half of reality. We as Christians live out of the whole of reality. We don't live simply by that which is visible. If you only live out of that which is visible, you'll be scared to death. You'll freak out all the time. You'll be mad all the time. Paul summarizes it when he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Or better yet, Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. The Lord, think about it, of angelic armies is with us. That's true. Say, I can't see them. They're with us. We put all of our chips in the, on the Lord's square. We trust him wholly. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And that's good news because Jacob was messed up. I mean, we can get in on it, right? Jacob's, his family was, was like the mountains that were falling apart. 
<laughs> you think your family's bad, just read Genesis. It will encourage you. It's like Jerry Springer's show, reading this stuff. <clears throat> I'm serious. <clears throat> He's the Lord of grace. That's another way to, of describing God, the God of Jacob. He's merciful and gracious. We haven't merited Him being our refuge. We've been welcomed by Him. By His grace, we're in. It's kind of like Noah. And Noah's got his own stories, doesn't he? I mean, he's like drunk in a tent one time, like a, like a dude in Panama City on spring break. And how in the world did he, does he get saved? Well, over and over in Genesis we read, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he's preaching to people, come get in this boat. Come get in the refuge. You can get in the refuge. You're invited to get into the refuge. We're here by grace. We rest in God today because of His grace. And that's what we hold out to our unbelieving friends. We don't say, man, we found refuge because we're smarter than you. We're, we're more moral than you. No, we're not. No, we found refuge because He's the God of Jacob. Because He's the God of grace. Ray Ortland, well-known pastor who Lord willing to preach here on September 12th, said last week at this conference, he said, this is the motto at our church. It's in Nashville. He says, this is the motto. I am a complete idiot. My future is bright, and anyone can get in on this. I'm a complete idiot, but my future is bright, and anyone can get in on this. I like that motto. And now what we're saying is, come get in this refuge. Anybody can get in on it. If, if the, he's the God of Jacob. In the midst of raging attackers, the Lord is our protection and He's with us. In the midst of creational crisis, finally, in world history, come behold the works of the Lord. That is, come behold all that He has done in history. Come behold the exodus. Come behold the conquest. Come behold the period of the judges. Come behold the monarchy. Throughout history, God has acted. God has a resume unlike anyone else's. And this look back at what God has done always instills confidence in us in the present and for the future. And if the psalmist could say, look back at what God has done, how much more can we on this side of the cross say that? We have even more acts to ponder. And we'll look at this more next week on Psalm 77. Come behold the work of the cross of Jesus Christ where your sin was dealt with. Come behold His work at the resurrection where death was defeated. Come behold His work at the ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit. Come behold His work in one another as people have been brought from death to life. And He says, this is the God who brought, has brought desolations on the earth. He's not a distant God. He's intervened in human history. He's devastated His enemies. He's dealt with transgressors. This is the God, He says, you trust in. Egypt thought they were something. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was something. The Assyrians thought they were something. And he's brought desolations on the earth. And he will bring the final destruction of his enemies and the enemies of the people of God in the future through Jesus Christ at the end of the age. That's why Luther wrote in that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, his rage, speaking of the devil, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. We rest in that. He's the God who brings peace. That's how he says in verse 9, he makes wars to cease. Isaiah and Micah speak of the day in which we don't need any more weapons. 
where weapons are turned into to farming instruments because there's no more war. There's no more strife. And how does God defeat these enemies? Well, I like how H.B. Charles says it. He doesn't play fair. Notice verse 9, what he does. He breaks the bow. He destroys their weapons. So the enemies that are far away from you, he breaks their bow. The enemies that are close to you, he shatters their spear. The enemies that want to pursue you, he burns their chariots with fire. He did something like that in the Exodus. Exodus 14, verse 25, when Egypt came after Israel, it says God clogged the wheels of their chariot. Their weaponry doesn't work, and they're no match. And now we get to God speaking, verse 10. Up to this point, the psalmist is bragging on God, telling us why we should trust in him. And now God speaks and says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Be still. This is first and foremost not, I think this is how most people have understood it, a comfort to the people of God who are being harassed. It's actually a rebuke to the raging world. Be still. Enemies of God, stop fighting. In fact, the CSB translates it this way. Stop fighting and know that I am God. Of course, it is a word of comfort, but everything up to this point has already comforted the people of God. This is a rebuke. Some translations translate it, leave off, quit, be still, and know that I, stop fighting me and start worshiping me. Stop rebelling against me and turn to me to be your refuge. Be still and know that I am God. So this is God asserting his sovereignty not just over Israel now, but over all the nations. It makes us think of Jesus looking at the raging sea saying, be still. Stop raging. Quiet. Some of us can't even get our dogs to be quiet. <laughs> I've been quoting this psalm to them all, all week, and it doesn't work. Be still. Uh, quit. Sit. Nothing works. It's a word. Surrender. Surrender to me. And if you're not a Christian, just, just hear that. We cannot prevail against God. What we do is we, we gladly lay down our weaponry and we repent and we trust Him. Instead of rebelling against Him, turn to Him and He will be your God because He is not a tribal deity for just one nation or one ethnicity. He will be exalted among the nations, the ethne. He is the God, the only God of all nations. And his purpose will prevail, with or without us. Regardless of your response, this will happen. He will be exalted on the earth. The glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. All of history is moving somewhere. We're not on a treadmill going nowhere. History is going somewhere. And it's going to the day, Philippians 2 tells us, where every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's, that's where it's all going. Revelation 5, 9, every tribe, language, people, and nation will worship him. His purposes will prevail. What does this mean for us as God's people? It means we can relax a little bit. We can find comfort in this reality. When it looks like the mountains are giving way, God is still working out his purposes. It means that when we try to make disciples of all nations, 
we can do so with confidence because this is first God's mission. We are aligning ourselves with God's purposes. I mean, why would we ever have the audacity to move our whole family overseas somewhere in a hard place to make the gospel known? We go with this in mind. It will happen. Why would we move our family to a, a city somewhere in the States to plant a church? Because we know that God's purpose is to exalt his name. God's purpose is to receive praise from all the nations. And we go with confidence. It is a mission that cannot fail. It cannot fail. Jesus Christ will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So surrender to this God, he says. You nations who are raging, you're trying to come up on my people in the city of Jerusalem, stop. Stop fighting. He just laughs at you. Surrender to him. And he'll have you. Because this is the God who turns his enemies into his friends. This is the God who reconciles his enemies by sending his own son to die for them. What a God this is. And then the refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The God, the divine warrior, my friends, is on our side today. He is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We go with this assurance as well, the Great Commission, that Jesus Christ promises to be with us. And we literally, because of Christ, have nothing to fear because he's with us. But we have fears. That's why we preach this to ourselves all the time. This is why Luther would tell his pal Melanchthon, come Philip, let's sing the 46th Psalm. Maybe you'll find a friend this week to sing the 46th Psalm with. Just text him up and say, hey, I'd like to sing Psalm 46 to you. Maybe you want to have a new tune. You don't like Kimberly's tune. That's all right. Maybe you want a little hip hop, a little jazz, whatever you want. Recite it, put it in your heart. Because here's the deal. We will face worst case scenarios. Trouble will come upon us. What do we do in these moments? We remember God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, and he will be exalted among the nations. And one day, we as his people will be in that number. We'll be in a new heaven and a new earth, and we'll look around at all these people from all these different places, and we're like, how, how did you get here, man? <laughs> I'm more surprised than you are, I say. Like, I'm here because God said he'd be my refuge, and I ran to him. Jesus Christ is our ultimate refuge. And if you are in Christ, that wonderful phrase we see over and over in the New Testament, being in Christ, we are safe. We are saved. We are his. We are in the beloved. And nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We take that to Monday morning, right? It feels good right now on Sunday morning. We want to apply it on Monday morning and the rest of the week and on the day we die, rehearsing these truths, simple truths, that he is our God and he is with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wonderful mercy that you have shown us in giving us Jesus Christ to be our Savior the one who shields us, protects us, delivers us. We look back on his works and we marvel at them and they fill us afresh with confidence in the present moment. And so today I pray that you would grant great peace and great comfort to your people 
in light of the truths that we've looked at today. Take them and write them on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.